you are listening to the transforming india podcast jointly brought to you by the deepak and neeraj center on indian economic policies at columbia university and the times of india i am arvind panagaria director of the raj center and professor of economics at columbia my co-host on this podcast is professor praveen krishna he is a professor of international economics and business at johns hopkins university welcome praveen hi arvind delighted to join you for the 15th episode of our podcast india has clearly witnessed major developments in the geopolitical arena recently with serious consequences for international trade relations and its trade policy it's now becoming increasingly clear that president xi of china wants to see his country become the dominant global power within his lifetime that would of course require china to also become asia's undisputed regional power and towards that end china has already begun flexing its muscle in the region in east asia china has introduced a new security law for hong kong and it has been flying its jets over taiwanese airspace in the east china sea there have been conflicts with japan and south korea similarly in the south china sea it has been disputing territory with the philippines malaysia vietnam and indonesia and it has also sunk a vietnamese boat in the pacific china has launched cyber attacks on australia finally closest to home in south asia china has made claims over previously undisputed bhutanese territory and there also been clashes in ladakh india in particular in the galwan valley that have resulted in numerous deaths these incidents testify to the hegemonic tendencies of the communist party of china that controls the chinese economic and political system and the aggressive actions by the ruling party have undoubtedly left ordinary chinese citizens worried about china's future relations with its neighbors and with the rest of the world very true praveen in addition to its hegemonic tendencies one can also begin to see the early contours of a new cold war developing with asean countries already heavily dependent on it china is also steadily trying to draw countries that have been traditionally friendly towards india such as nepal bangladesh and now iran in its sphere of influence the country with which it will find most difficult to deal is going to be india in asia potentially india is the biggest obstacle china faces on the road to becoming the top regional power china recognizes this and will therefore do whatever it can to contain india's rise it is difficult not to speculate that the increased chinese activity and claims on the indian border are at least partially aimed at keeping india distracted from its economy i think india needs to be extremely careful in this regard and must not lose sight of the fact that india's best defense against two aggressive neighbors china and pakistan and the prospects of more neighbors turning unfriendly or even hostile is to bridge the gap in economic size with china
no doubt for now india will need strategic partnership among the quad countries that include itself the united states japan and australia but in the longer run india can stand up to china only by being its near equal in economic size clearly other members of the quad cannot help india directly in conflicts fought largely on land nor can india count on russia helping it in a conflict against china because today Russia is also a good friend of China. So the economic size, which also determines military preparedness, is the key for India. All this has serious implications for economic policy, Arvind. Not surprisingly, there have been calls for a rejig of India's trade policy towards China in the wake of Galwan events. So playing to our competitive advantage as trade economists, let us concentrate on India's trade policy choices vis-a-vis -vis China in this episode. To kick off our discussion, let me say that there is more or less a consensus that India needs to distance itself in international trade with China. That, of course, means that the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, that you and I had both championed before these events in Ladakh is now more or less out of the question. Likewise, when trade and foreign investment by China pose a direct threat to security, direct action will have to be taken. The government has already moved in this direction by announcing that it will carefully scrutinize Chinese FDI into India and by banning 59 Chinese apps, most notably the very popular TikTok app. In a similar vein, if the Huawei 5G network carries the risk of bringing spyware with it, then India must clearly look elsewhere for its 5G networks. But a somewhat more difficult question concerns, I think, the bulk of merchandise trade that India has with China. And the question is, you know, what is India's best strategy for that? Praveen, it seems to me that in the area of merchandise trade, India has three potential options from which it must choose. First, it can introduce tariffs that apply only to imports from China. In this case, it will have to invoke the National Security Clause of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT. Given the border hostilities, I am inclined to believe that this is a feasible option, though in principle China can challenge these discriminatory tariffs against it in the World Trade Organization or WTO. Second, India could impose non-discriminatory tariffs on imports of products that come principally from China. In this case, as long as the higher tariffs are not in excess of India's bound tariffs, no violation of GATT will happen. In this case, India will be well within its WTO rights and China or other trading partners cannot challenge India. Finally, a longer term option is to make imports from other countries more attractive than those from China rather than make imports from China less attractive. For this, India will have to negotiate free trade agreements with its other trading partners, which will divert trade from China and towards these trading partners. I think it will be worthwhile to consider the pros and cons of each of these options in some detail. Okay, Arvind. In that case, let me try to unpack the costs and benefits of the first option that you outlined, tariffs that apply only to imports from China. For the objective of cutting imports from China, this is clearly the most direct instrument that we have. It heads directly at the target, but there are at least two potential costs that we need to take into account. First, that merchandise imports from China constitute about 
15% of India's total merchandise imports. And these imports include significant volumes of raw materials and components that feed into our own manufacturing industry. So at a time when India's economy is struggling to recover from pre-COVID-19 stress in the financial sector, as well as the much bigger shock that came from COVID-19 itself, replacing these imports from China and going to sources that potentially charge significantly higher prices will have an adverse impact on our recovery. The second potential cost is the possibility of China retaliating. So we must remember that China is not a country that will just accept any additional duties imposed on its exports by India in a kind of passive manner. We know that China retaliated against even the United States in the context of the kind of the U.S.-China trade war. So it's almost certain that China will retaliate by imposing new duties on our exports to China. Indeed, it may also retaliate by prohibiting exports of certain critical inputs that only China can supply or that it can supply at prices significantly lower than others. So getting into a trade war of this kind poses an even larger risk to our recovery. You make a compelling case against this option, Praveen. The next option we have is to aim at the Chinese imports a little less directly by imposing tariffs on not just China, but on all trading partners on products that we principally import from China. I think overall, this is an even worse option than the previous one for three reasons. First, given that the targeted products will be those imported overwhelmingly from China, the risk of retaliation by China is no less. As long as product list is aimed at China, it will see the measure as an act of hostility against it and respond in kind. Second, non-discrimination vis-a-vis other trading partners would mean that cost effectiveness of China relative to other trading partners will remain unchanged. Therefore, unless India is able to produce the targeted products domestically, they will continue to come from China. The intended objective of disengaging from China will be fulfilled only partially. And to the extent that domestically sourced supplies of the products may be inferior in quality or more expensive, user industries of these products will be adversely impacted. Finally, we must not forget that usual injury to consumers will also happen. While the political process pays attention mostly to producers' interests and neglects the interests of the consumers, economists cannot do the same. It is possible that the government will restrict imports of products selectively such that it leaves out raw materials and components and targets tariffs on final products. But this will be injurious to consumers who will end up paying higher prices. Arvind, that then leaves us with the last option, a gradual movement away from China through free trade agreements with other trading partners. This is clearly the least disruptive option since it moves India away from China in a piecemeal fashion. Any agreements that we negotiate will take time. And moreover, the implementation schedules in free trade agreements can extend up to 20 years. From a trade economist perspective, this is also an option that moves India towards greater openness. This is in contrast to the first two options that move India away from openness. 
Okay, Praveen, since you had written a full-fledged paper on India's FTAs for our Columbia-India summit last year, I want to push you a bit on the FTA issue. First and foremost, India's external affairs minister has recently expressed very strong reservations regarding FTAs, saying that these agreements have not done much for India. He puts the matter rather starkly in these terms and now I'm quoting him verbatim. He says, look at the state of the economy, look at the state of the manufacturing, then look me in the eyes and say, yes, these FTAs have served me well. You won't be able to do that. End of quote. How do you respond, Praveen, to the challenge that the external affairs minister has thrown at the advocates of FTAs as a policy lever for India? Arvind, that is easy to answer. To date, FTA agreements have hardly been a centerpiece of India's growth and job strategy. How can the efficacy of a policy be judged by performance of the economy when that policy has not even been in place? Let me make two points to substantiate what I'm saying. First, we surely have signed a few FTA agreements, but all except the one with Japan are with other developing countries with whom our potential trade is small. Our four largest trading partners are the United States, China, the European Union, and the UAE, and we don't have an FTA with any one of them. Taken together, more than 85% of our merchandise trade is with countries with whom we don't have an FTA. And mind you, more than 90% of our current trade with FTA partners will still be there even if we had no FTA with them. Therefore, the the contribution of our existing FTAs to our trade is minuscule, less than about 3%. To say that this trade accounts for the current woes in manufacturing or the economy as a whole is to say that the tail is wagging the dog. The second point I wish to make is that only three of our FTAs, those with Japan, Singapore, and South Korea, are genuine free trade agreements in the sense that they adhere to the strict definition of FTAs provided in Article 24 of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. These three countries account for less than 8% of our total merchandise trade. All other free trade agreements that we have signed are under the enabling clause of the World Trade Organization, under which even a small exchange of trade preferences on a small number of products can and qualify as a free trade agreement. Often these free trade agreements have limited impact because of the exclusion of a large proportion of trading commodities, as is definitely the case with India's trade agreements. So in your first point, Praveen, you are saying in effect that just because a few FTAs exist, it does not mean automatically that they are the principal or even an important cause of the current weakness in the economy in general and manufacturing in particular. As an analogy, just because the insolvency and bankruptcy code was enacted immediately before the current distress in the financial markets began to appear, we cannot conclude that the IBC was the cause of that distress. In fact, we know that the IBC is an important key to averting future episodes of financial distress. So that's an analogy supporting what you just said about FTAs not being cause of the current state of the economy and in particular the manufacturing. Next, let me ask Praveen, which potential trading partners do you have in mind when you recommend FTAs as the strategy to distance India from China? Are we talking about large partners such as the European Union and the United States? Yes, those are the two key partners I have in mind, though we might also add countries such as the United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada to that list. While strategically, it would be great if we could begin with the United States, I can see that this may not be feasible immediately. The United States has a very competitive agricultural sector, and India will face serious political obstacles to opening its agriculture to the U.S. The United States also insists on disciplines relating to labor and environmental standards and intellectual property 
property that India will find difficult to accept. So a good starting point can be the European Union. The EU will not pose a challenge to our agriculture, and it will not insist on issues of labor standards and intellectual property. So an agreement with it is within the realm of the feasible. We can also pursue free trade agreements with the United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada in parallel. And down the road, as our comfort level rises and confidence builds, we can proceed to the United States as well. By the way, one must admire the courage of Vietnam in this respect. This is a country less than one-tenth of India in both population and GDP, and yet it has signed agreements with the EU and China and the Trans-Pacific Partnership that originally included the United States. Excellent, Praveen. An alternative reading of this statement by the External Affairs Minister would be that he is expressing skepticism towards trade in general rather than just free trade agreements. I hope that is not the case since the evidence very much points to trade having been central to the Indian GDP, rising from $477 billion in 2000-2001 to $2.8 trillion in 2018-19 in current US dollar terms. This is a near six-fold expansion. Even manufacturing has grown much faster during this period than any other 18-year period in our known history. During this period, our trade in goods and services grew by leaps and bounds. In current dollars, our exports in 2000-2001 stood at $61.7 billion, and by 2018-19, they had risen to $545.2 billion. This was an expansion by a factor of 8.8, a factor which is larger than the factor by which the GDP expanded over the same period. In developing countries, you cannot find a case when fast growth in the GDP has taken place without fast growth in trade. Therefore, I hope that even if the external affairs minister has expressed his opposition to FTAs, it is not an opposition to trade and that he doesn't support closing the Indian economy to foreign trade. That will be very unfortunate for the Indian economy. Yes, indeed, Arvind. We should not forget that as far as import substitution and inward-looking trade policies are concerned, India has already been there. For four decades following independence, India followed that policy with devastating results. Some in the government and outside think that perhaps this time will be different because we're beginning at a higher level of trade with the outside world. But I fear that we're already beginning to see that the outcomes are no different. In the last five to six years, we have tried to do import substitution in the electronics industry, but nothing spectacular has been achieved. Imports of electronic goods shot up from 32.4 billion to 55.6 billion between 2013-14 and 2018-19, while exports have inched up from 7.6 billion to just 8.9 billion over that same period. Predictably, protected and subsidized, several mobile phone assembly firms have come up, but they have not added up to a vibrant electronics industry. Nearly all locally owned firms are small by global standards, with not one that is about to turn into a powerhouse for exports. So the case for either going for free trade agreements or opening up the economy to free trade unilaterally on our own is strong. We simply cannot afford to return to the bad old days of protectionism and import substitution. With this, our time is up for today's episode. Let me thank our listeners for joining in. Signing off, this is Praveen Krishna. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insight at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.